Good Saturday, everyone. Hope you're all doing dandy wherever you are right now. Today, I've got former NYPD Detective Sergeant Mike Cordella on the show. He worked as an undercover officer and was heavily involved with the Missing Persons Squad, Special Frauds Squad, West African Task Force, as well as the Secret Service Task Force. So he's very, very high up. And in his time as a top cop, he worked on many high-profile cases and worked as a plainclothes officer for the DEA fighting narco crimes in Manhattan's notorious Alphabet City. We'll discuss his investigations into the infamous Son of Sam serial killer too. But what I'm really interested in, more than anything else, are his beginnings with the Mafia. Because he very nearly became involved in crime himself. They talk about the thin blue line, that line separating the cops from the criminals. And Mike really did straddle that line. I love listening to his stories from those days and the descriptions of the seemingly psychopathic mafia bosses with whom he had some quite dodgy, I would say, run-ins. They might well have killed him and he wouldn't be here to tell this story. It's amazing to think of those sliding door moments because had he been even arrested while carrying out some of those sort of minor crimes for mafia bosses at the very beginning, he might have continued along that path to delinquency. Instead, he went on to have a decorated and prestigious career in law enforcement, catching those very delinquents that might have been him in another life. Get hold of his book, Alphaville, New York, 1988, Welcome to Heroin City, to find out more about his DEA anti-narco work. This was originally part of the Sean Atwood show, being one of my Saturday episodes. It was organized by their lovely producer, Ash Meikle, so you'll find the full four-hour show on the Sean Atwood True Crime Show. This was just one of the many segments of that show. Coming up are episodes about the Children of God cult, child sacrifice and psychedelic drugs but now you're on the edge of narco crime the mafia and the thin blue line with mike codella mike how you doing hey man how are you i am well thank you where are you calling us from today i'm in staten island new york I've heard of that place. That's like, I've heard, I know what New York is, but I've heard of Staten Island as well. Is it an actual island? Um, Yeah, it is actually. Connected oh, to New go. Jersey and connected to uh, Brooklyn. Oh, right. I've never been to that part of the world. I must get out there sometime. Seems very interesting. And lots of uh, interesting movies and things and things that give me an idea of New York. And obviously you've got a fascinating history yourself. Uh, in and around the area. So maybe, would you mind giving us a little background for people who don't know about your life and times? Um, Okay. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and that's where I grew up, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, And when I was 20 years old, I became a cop here in New York City. Mm. Um, Prior to that, I hung around, you know, just a regular guy uh, with some wild friends, kind of like the guys you see... uh, on TV and some of these movies, just knocking yeah. around. Yeah. Oh, I love all that. And so you got sort of, am I right in saying you were sort of involved with the mafia side? It's that thin blue line thing. And then you sort of went towards the police side. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't a mobster or by any means, but uh, some of my friends' fathers were heavy involved. And, um, 
you know, it's right in front of you. You grow up with it. You see it. You're with these guys all the time. And, um, you know, you learn, you learn a little bit about that life. Mm. And, do, and do you think you could have gone that way? Could, could that have happened? It, it could have easily have happened. You know, I had a couple of instances when I was a little bit, when I was young, when I was in my teens and, um, it kind of turned me off to that to that uh, lifestyle, seeing the treachery and the backstabbing and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I saw the glamour, but I also saw hmm. what was involved, and I saw how in the long run that would uh, – how detrimental that would be in the long run. I suppose, you know, those movies that I was referring to, there's a sort of moral code among gangsters, but you talk of the treachery and backstabbing. So I guess the movies are a bit of a Hollywood glamorization of, of the, you know, the reality. Well, I mean, the bottom line is this. Um, it's a way of life for these guys, for a lot of these guys, but it's also the way they feed their family, the way they make their money. Um, yeah, there's some brotherhood involved, but... At the end of the day, for the most part, it comes down to dollars and cents and what's going to benefit mm. number one, basically. Yeah, I understand that. What, can you give me an example of the kind of things, uh, you know, that you talk of the treachery and greed and stuff? Do you have any particular stories you remember from back then, those early days? Uh, yeah, I, I'll give you um, I'll give you one or two. When I was young, when I was about 17 years old, um, a couple of my friends... Uh, they were going to do this. They were going to do a, a heist on a on a closed down bar, uh, a bar that was shuttered down. And mm -hmm. the, the what they were going to steal was what they call Joker poker machines. I don't know if you're familiar with them in the UK. Right. So basically, they're gambling machines, and they the mob puts them in bars and some restaurants, and and they they were illegal then, and they're illegal now. I'm sure, although although they're not as prevalent now as they once were. Mm -hmm. um, and this particular bar in, in Brooklyn had a, a couple of them, along with cigarette machines and some other stuff. Uh, so my one, one of, I call him an associate, but he was a friend, but we didn't hang around often, but he was a friend. He was uh, asked by one of John Gotti's guys, one of John Gotti's main lieutenants, a guy named Eddie Lino, who was known in my neighborhood as uh, being a, a, a vicious guy, but I was also being a drug dealer to a lot of the guys in my neighborhood, a lot of the younger guys. Um, and Eddie Lino's had a reputation, like I said, and he asked one of my friends if he could get a couple of guys going to this bar that's already closed down, steal these Joker poker machines, and Eddie Lino was going to pay us for the, for doing that. We were going to meet somewhere. He was going to give us the money, and that was it. Well, um like I said, I've said before, um, I don't. I didn't really need the money, to be honest. It was more of a excitement thing, an action thing, uh, sure. you know, buddying up to maybe some of these bad guys and mob guys, you know. And I went in. I opened the door. I had my other friends. It was a high fence to hop in this place. I I ran out, got out of the car late at night, hopped over the fence, went in the place, opened the front door, and we went in. And we removed these. Um, Joker poker machines, and we were putting them in a stolen truck that one of my friends had stolen prior to us going there, obviously. Um, when the truck is fully loaded, first of all, we almost get pinched because the cops are following us with their lights and sirens, and we thought they were coming after us. So right off the bat, I knew it wasn't going to – it looked like the night was going to end even before it started, basically. Oh, uh, yeah. 
they they didn't come after us. We were we we you know the cops basically went right by us, and then we meet Eddie Lino in this uh, parking lot where we were supposed to meet him, and um, he was supposed to pay us there and then for the machines. And when we get there, he was an arrogant guy. Like I said, he was a, a vicious guy. Um, we pull up, he's there already. My one friend gets out of the car to talk to him, the guy who set it up. And Eddie Lino basically wants us to now follow him who knows where with this truck full of stolen property and the stolen truck. When my friend comes back to me, I start giving him a little bit of crap, basically, because I thought it was over and I was ready for the night to end. And um, Eddie Lino hears that there's a little racket going between me and my friend and he calls me over. And when he calls me over, he basically asks me what's going He asks me for my name. Uh, and what basically is the problem? What, what's the issue going on? What's the argument? And I told him, uh, and I tried to be polite and respectful, but I was like, you know, as far as I was concerned, once we got here, we were done. And um, to be honest, he was anything but happy with my response. Oh, my and God. I actually, so he, go, he reaches into his pocket. He begrudgingly throws me a couple of dollars. Um, and honestly, I, when I turned, when I was, first of all, I thought he was going to hit me, literally punch me or smack me, which he didn't. But when I turned, I thought for sure he was going to shoot me in the head. That's how, Oh my God. Because he didn't want to relieve, he didn't want to relieve himself of the money that he was giving me. And it was a small amount of money for a guy with so much money and for the job we just did, but he was obviously aggravated and agitated. And when I turned all I kept thinking to myself is this guy is going to shoot me in the back of the head in front of my friends in this parking lot, deserted parking lot, and they're going to leave me here dead. But, of course, he didn't. My friends, I told him, that's it. I'm done. I got my money. Um, he ordered them basically to get in the van and get in the truck and follow him, and they complied. And I got to ride home a completely different way. And that was just one incident. And again, how, how old how old were you at this time? I was about sixteen or seventeen. Okay, and so the moment you you think any minute everything's going to go just completely black because you're gonna you're gonna hear a shot and then that's it the end of your life. You must have been panicking. Well, yeah. I, at first, I thought he was gonna like I said. I thought he was gonna take a swing at me. So I kind of moved my body a little bit that if he did swing at me, I'll take the brunt of it or roll a little bit my head and wouldn't have been too bad. And then when he didn't do that. I was kind of relieved, but in the same sense, I was a little uh, apprehensive of why he didn't hit me, uh, seeing how angry he was. And then I assumed, as I'm thinking, he didn't hit me because now I think he's going to maybe shoot a 17-year-old kid in the back of the head. And is that but the kind it, of thing they were doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it was only for a few hours, but I felt that he felt that he was maybe disrespected. Sure. And again, he didn't want to give up, give up the money basically that he had promised. Oh. oh my God. And were you saying you had a, another story about from back then? Yeah. So another thing, it's a, just about the same time. Um, now those guys I did that job with, they weren't really close friends of mine. We knew each other. We knocked around a little bit, but they weren't really close friends. These other guys were my really tight crew. And that makes a difference in the story because, and you'll see why. So this other crew we hung out with. I hung out with, like I said, we were really close. And one night, uh, one summer night, 
we were just hanging out, walking the neighborhood, Brooklyn, Canarsie, Brooklyn. And um, we end up stopping in front of a pizzeria to, to just goof around, basically. Sure. And a little, uh, some young, uh, older Italian guy comes out and he uh, tells us to leave the front of his store. And he doesn't say it in such a nice way, but he basically demands that we leave the front of the store because we're, we're causing too much noise. And we're just young kids, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, we all play football together. We actually had practice the next morning, and we just shoot this guy away. And, yeah, we're leaving, but we don't leave. He comes out again, basically a little bit more agitated. And, again, we just yes him to death, but nobody moves. But at this time, I had a, I was getting ready to leave anyway because, I, like I said, the next day was football practice. We were all on a team together, and I'm leaving. One of my other friends leaves with me. We leave. While I'm as I'm leaving, or just about after I'm gone, the guy comes back out. This time he has a baseball bat, and he attempts to hit my friends. Now, there was a few of us. Two of us left. There was like four or five guys still there. And it was a mistake to try to hit my friends because we were pretty tough guys, pretty tough kids, uh, knock around kids from the neighborhood in pretty good shape. When he tries to hit my friends, they take the bat from him and they end up doing a number on him, on the uh, on this guy. Well, unbeknownst to us, this guy was a well-known, old-time mafioso from Brooklyn. Oh. In fact, in the movie, his name was Bruno Facciola. Now, in the movie Goodfellas, the guy yes. that brings Tommy, De the guy that brings Joe Pesci to the, to when Joe Pesci gets killed, yeah, when they that was this guy. Oh my God! He was the one in real life that brought the real Tommy De Simone to his death. <sighs> uh, he was a well-known mobster, and so was his brother. He was a Lucchese mobster. His brother was a Gambino mobster, and um, we had known the name. His name. Bruno, everybody in Canarsie knew the name Bruno, but we didn't know what he looked like. We just heard the name. Well, this happened to be Bruno. Uh, so now, Bruno, of course, is going to get retribution. However, he doesn't know who these kids were that beat him up, basically. So apparently, now, in the mix of these kids, of my good friends, uh, two, of the, two of them are brothers, and their father's a very connected guy. Another guy's another pop, uh, young kid. His father is also connected, very connected guy. So, what happened was apparently Bruno reached out, or the kid reached out through his father to Bruno, and apparently he gave up everybody, even the two brothers who were very well connected, uh. because Bruno found out who did it, and he basically took retribution on all the kids there, uh, the two brothers who who, were, like I said, whose father was very well connected, they were actually set up by their own godfather, who was a mobster. And they got really beaten bad with a plate. One ended up with a plate in the head. The other ended up in the hospital for several weeks. Uh, another one of these guys ended up shot um, through the legs on the way to work. They shot him with a sawed-off shotgun. Oh, my God. And the one kid who... Talk, my, my, the point of this was the treachery and the betrayal. One of the, like I said, one of these guys gave up everybody. And it was the one, the other guy whose father was connected. So he gave up everyone, obviously, to save his own skin, which he did. And um, that was just another instance of 
how this like how that life works and um dog eat dog basically uh survival of the fittest that kind of thing oh my god so you got i mean how did you get out of all of that and but by the way can i i'm sorry to ask again that you don't uh, fiddle with that paper or whatever because we can hear it just gotcha. picks up on the sorry about that but sure, yeah no how problem. did you get how did you get out of not like without getting retribution on you were you were there weren't you well, I left. me and one other guy left okay okay and, you know he he, he at the I don't even think I say that he didn't give us up because we were gone. Or maybe he did give us up, but Bruno didn't want us because we actually left before the beating started. Oh, my God. So that's the skin of your teeth. And then, the, I mean, the story before as well, the gambling machines or whatever with the police. If the police had caught you, because I presume you can't go on to be a police officer if you've got a criminal record, can you? No. So that would have been a sliding doors moment, you know? Had you been caught doing something silly like that, you know, young, you're a, you're a kid, and then that's the end of that. So how did you go on to become, a, you know, the top cop? Um, well, really, I had, I had just, uh, my father had uh, basically told me to take the police test, take the fireman test, you know, get yourself on, on track, and I took the test, not really wanted to be a cop, to be quite honest. Um, I just took it to appease my father. And then after these incidents, I was about 19, 20 years old. The NYPD called me, the police department called me and, um, I was doing nothing, literally nothing. I mean, I was working, but no clear path. And I took the, took the job. And once I, once I decided to take the job, I, uh, I really decided to, you know, put my head down. Yeah, you you embraced it, and you, you and you became an NYPD detective sergeant. Which I don't know all the I don't know the hierarchy. I should probably know it a bit better, but that sounds very high up to me. Um, I mean, it's an investigative, bo- yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an investigative boss, is what it is. And um, I mean, it it's a test taking, and it's also an appointment, so it's a little bit of both. Okay, and one of the things you did with your partner um, back in the well late eighties, I think, was put an end to the heroin trade in in Manhattan, South Bet City, right? Uh, well, we 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 definitely. I don't know. I don't know if I should say we put an end to it, but we definitely yeah. put a, a a beating on the on the heroin trade in Alphabet City for sure. How does one go about doing that? Well, I don't know if you're familiar with Alphabet City or, or Manhattan's Lower East Side, but at the time in the 1980s, it was literally the heroin capital of the world. I mean, that's what wow. it was known for. Uh, heroin users would come from all over the country. Um, and even if people were from out of the country and if they had a heroin problem or they wanted to get high, that's where they would go to get their heroin, down in Alphabet City. And um, it was really a... a a depressed area it's it's a you know it's a ghetto um and the actual heroin trade itself the whole the whole neighborhood was involved um everybody made money from the elderly to the young kids people stored the heroin in their, in their apartments got money the people who pushed it on the corner got money um in the morning you'd see a line of 20 30 40 people standing in line to get their morning heroin um wow. it was like like nothing you could imagine unless you've seen with your own eyes to see people lined up to get their morning fix, uh, functioning heroin addicts, junk out now junkies. It, it was ridiculous, and me and my partner really we we to watch you know like sometimes you see kids kicking a can to school. That's what I talk about in my book. Actually, you see kids kick a can to school or kick a ball to school. They used to kick 
hypodermic needles up and down the street because that's how prevalent the dope was. Wow. Oh my God. And so what do you do to like, even I wouldn't, where do you even start? Well, we, I, we, my partner and I started in uniform and when we were in uniform, we made a lot of arrests and then mm. they put us in a special unit called operation eight and operation eight was, uh, funded by the government, the U S government. And they gave us a special vehicle, uh, they paid for everything. The government paid for everything, not the city, our overtime. And there were originally four cops and a sergeant. And um, we really just really started locking everybody up, heroin, drug calls. And the Operation 8 was specialized on eight housing projects in Alphabet City, the, the eight worst projects in Alphabet City. And we really dug our, dug our heels in and locked up everyone. Then the drug enforcement agency, the Drug Enforcement Administration, um, they actually had a case with some criminals down in Alphabet City. And they asked us if we could help them, if we knew them, which of course we did because we locked everybody up. They recruited us into the DEA and um, we ended up doing a couple of wiretaps and we ended up taking down about 40 of the biggest heroin dealers in Alphabet City. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist 
Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. There's a, a question on the side from Ray J just saying, what year did that start? But I don't know what you mean exactly, Ray J. So if you could just specify, uh, and then I can ask Mike after. Um, t- tell me, what, what is the process church of the final judgment? Okay, so the process church of the final judgment, that is a, um, it's a cult. And um, it was created, or I guess the word is created by a guy by the name of Robert the Grimson who's actually from, uh, well, I think he was born in Shanghai, if I'm not mistaken, but I think he was uh, from London. or He he was from the UK, but I think his fa- his family might have been uh, military, and he lived in, born in Shanghai, I believe. But in any event, he was from the UK, um, and he was actually a member of L. Ron Hubbard's Scientology uh, right. back in the 60s. Right. And then he splinted the, Robert the Grimson, uh, met a woman named Mary Ann McLean who was either married to L. Ron Hubbard or was engaged to L. Ron Hubbard, but she left L. Ron Hubbard for this guy, Robert DeGrimson. And they started this cult called the Process Church of the Final Judgment. Wow, I never knew of that. And so what was your investigation into them like? And and how does it pertain to the the son of Sam, which was, for those who don't know, it's David Berkowitz, the, the serial killer, I, I think. That's right, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, that is right. That's correct. Mm. Mm. Um, so David Berkowitz was a serial killer who many people believe acted alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, he killed, he shot like seven or eight people, and he killed like six or seven people, uh, others. Um, and he was, this happened in the summer of 1976. Uh, 76, and he gets arrested in August of 77, I believe. But many people, when he first got arrested for these shootings and these killings, um, he claimed that his neighbor's dog gave him the order to kill these, kill and shoot these innocent victims. Um, and he said the neighbor's dog was possessed by the devil and he was given the order by his dog. So basically he was saying and telling people that he was mentally incompetent, that he had this mental issue and he wasn't all there. After he was arrested, at some point he comes forward and he says, that's not a true story. I just made that up. That was part of the plan. The real issue is, or the real circumstances was, I was part of this particular cult and the shootings and the killings i wasn't alone this particular cult the process church was involved with it we all took a part in it he berkowitz says i did some of them i didn't do them all the shootings and the killings um and if you look at the sketch sketches made by the police sketch artists you'll see that a lot of the sketches look nothing like berkowitz they actually look like people that he associated with um and that's how the process church is involved because or possibly involved because berkowitz was um a part of supposedly part of this church or had dealings with this church wow wow that's fascinating so that because peter there's so much stuff online about the son of sam and and you know who he who he was working with and all this sort of stuff so that's, that's i didn't know that and how did your 
I mean, how were you involved in, in, with that? So, all right, so th th that that actually transpired in the in the, like I said, seventy seven. He gets arrested. He did these mm. shootings and these killings in 70, 1976, 1977, He gets arrested. He starts to tell what might be the truth about this cult. Um, and at some point he gets in jail, he gets his flat, his, his neck and his face slashed by another inmate. Uh, and Berkowitz thinks that's a sign for him to keep quiet. He's afraid now he doesn't talk about it anymore. And, um, since he made that, that, those statements, he basically doesn't talk about the cult or, or the shootings at all. Um, and he's supposedly a born again Christian. Um, <laughs> And me and him have had some correspondence, um, but in any event, so now in 1996, 97, I get a call. I'm, I'm a sergeant in detectives, uh, and I get a call from an inmate at Attica State Prison. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Attica Prison. It's a New York State prison. Um, it's kind of an infamous, infamous jail. Um, and I get a call from an inmate who says that he the inmate has information on this missing kid named Ethan Pates is the kid's name. The, the inmate that's calling me, he screws up the name. He doesn't say the name correctly. Um, he butchers the name enough where I could recognize it, which kind of led me to think that maybe this guy's giving me an honest, because if you're going to call and, off information, you would figure he would have all his ducks in a row. He would give me the exact name. He would know. But since he screwed the name up a little bit, I kind of, and there was no internet back then. Um, he was, and, and even if there was, he wouldn't have had access to it in Attica, Attica prison. But in any event, he gives me this information that he has information on this missing kid and how it ties into this cult. So I go up to Attica uh, with the detectives. And we sit down and we interview this guy. And basically the story he gives me, and I'll, I'll tell you how it ties into Berkowitz, but the story he, he relates to me is that he is, a first of all, he was a big, uh, a big guy. He was like uh, well over six feet, maybe six, four, six, five, like 350 pounds, 400 pounds, a very intimidating guy. Um, and he was a 1% biker. And he was a vice president of a 1% bike gang. And his motorcycle gang or club or whatever you want to call it was contracted to do security around these mansions in Westchester, New York, which is, um, you know, some of the houses are big, beautiful mansions, rich, rich neighborhood, a lot of it. And him and his motorcycle gang was, were contracted to do these, uh, do security around these houses, mansions, while there are cult activity going on inside the mansions. Wow. And they're there in case the cops come to fight with the cops. And they're there in case anybody wants to come in and see what's going on. Any civilians want to come in there. So they're doing security with their colors on, their jackets on, and they're doing security. Well, eventually he, he, does, he gets to know some of the high priests in this cult and he starts going in and out of these houses while they're doing their rituals or whatever you want to call these rituals, whatever you want to call what's going on. So basically they're having sex, they're doing drugs, and they're doing cult activity in these houses. Wow. 
and at some point while he's watching what's going on, they call up a kid, and he's, he, again, the name of the kid is Eton Pace, but he screws it up. But they call up this young kid who fits Eton's description. Now, Eton was um, a young boy that was on his way to school. He was like six years old. He was on his way to school, and he disappeared basically off the face of the earth, um, never to be seen again one morning. Now, this guy says that this cult calls the kid up onto this stage that was made in this house, and they perform some kind of ritual, and he says he left at the time, but he leaves. The biker said he leaves, but he later learns that they sacrifice the little boy. Oh, my so, God. Now, the way that ties in to Berkowitz is this cult or this organization, whatever you want to call it, the final church, uh, the church of the final process, uh, the process church, I'm sorry, the process church of the final judgment is the same group supposedly, supposedly that Berkowitz was involved with. Right. That's how, right. That's how that kind of ties in. Now, sorry, go on. It, not too long ago, uh, I want to say about three or four years ago, they actually, police actually made an arrest on who they believe kidnapped this little boy. And it had nothing to do with the cult. Their, their theory and their arrest. Their theory and their arrest was uh, a guy who has a mental his, a history of mental disorder, mental problems, he confessed to snatching up the little boy that morning. However, the body was never found. Um, there's no real hard evidence. There's no, um, you know, there's no, other than his confession, there's no evidence that this guy actually did that crime. And again, he has a history of mental disorder, mental disease. So they don't know how true it is, but they took him to trial. The first trial was a hung jury, meaning the jury couldn't decide. The second jury, they convicted him. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't do it. I'm not saying that my, what I learned was correct. But um, people would have to just look into it themselves and make their own decision, basically. Yeah, it's a fascinating mystery. Um, and we're just running out of time, but do tell us the name of your book and where people can get it. I mean, I guess it's all the normal places to get a book, right? Yeah, it's actually the book actually did really well in the UK. It's called oh. Alphaville, uh, Alphaville 1988, Welcome to Heroin City. And uh, you can get it anywhere. It's on Amazon. Um, and you can check out my uh, YouTube page, which is my name, Mike Cadella Up Against the Wall. And um, you can get the book there too, also. Well, there you there you have it, everyone. Do go and get that book. Support our, our people and everything, our guests, because they take up the you know they use their time to come on here. Um, and that was that was fascinating, Mike. You were brilliant. I, I could listen to you all day. So thank you so much, and have a lovely well, evening. Thank you, man. Thank you, Mike Codella, for coming on the show. And thank you to producer Ash Meikle for arranging this interview as one segment of the Sean Atwood True Crime Podcast. Go check out the full episode with other guests and all sorts of things. It's four hours long over on Sean Atwood True Crime Podcast. Please do keep reviewing and sharing this show. Let friends of yours know about On the Edge with Andrew Gold. That's the best way for it to get out there. Word of mouth. 
It's grown a heck of a lot in the past two years, but still has a long way to go to be totally self-sufficient as a business. So getting there though, and I appreciate all that you guys have done for me so far. It's a really interactive and nice kind of relationship that I am very lucky to share with you listeners. Coming up are episodes on child sacrifice, the children of God cult, psychedelic drugs, after meat food, like the future of food beyond sort of meat and stuff, if, if that happens. And Andrew Doyle back on to talk about the new Puritans in the culture wars. See you soon. <laughs>